Welcome to Morning Commute, exploring advances in acute myeloid leukemia, frontline care of patients with FLT3 ITD. In this episode, treatment options for newly diagnosed AML patients. Dr. Harry Erba and Dr. Justin Watts take a look at current treatment options and take a deeper dive into the treatments now targeting FLT3 mutations, mitostorin, gilteritinib, and the new kid on the block, quitsartinib. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Senkyo. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash AML2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Erba is a professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Hematologic Malignancies and Cellular Therapy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Watts is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology and is Chief of the Leukemia Section at the University of Miami in Florida. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Erba will begin the discussion. Uh, Justin, welcome back. Now, in our last podcast, we had a fairly in-depth discussion about FLT3, uh, the mutations, the FLT3 ITD, how it's distinguished from the FLT3 TKD, prognostically in term, and also in terms of uh, as a target for uh, FLT3 inhibitors. Uh, we've talked about the importance of testing our AML patients um, because what it means for prognosis and the current uh, guidelines for molecular testing. However, having a test without a treatment is meaningless. But the good news is not only are there treatments targeting FLT3 ITD, but there are three of them, mitostorin, gilteritinib, and with the latest FDA approval, quizartinib. So to put this in perspective, um, let's, uh, I'm gonna turn it uh, over to, to you, Justin, to talk about the current treatment landscape for newly diagnosed FLT3 mutated AML. Thanks, Harry, good to see you again. Um, excited to talk more about FLT3 mutations today. Um, so for newly diagnosed AML patients with a FLT3 mutation, specifically an ITD mutation, which we're focused on here, um, I think the first breakdown is younger patients that are fit for intensive chemotherapy versus older adults um, that are considered unfit to receive intensive chemotherapy because they're going to receive different therapies. Um, in younger fit patients, which is generally less than 60, but can sometimes be up to age 75, um, it's intensive chemotherapy-based therapy, right? The backbone is generally 7 plus 3, cytarabine, infusional, and an anthracycline, donorubicin or adorubicin, with either mitostarin, if there's a FLT3 ITD or TKD mutation, or quizartinib now, if there is an ITD FLT3 mutation. In older adults, um, the standard of care for those not fit to receive chemotherapy, and sometimes that can be a bit nebulous, is venetoclax and an ipomethylated agent combination, typically azacitidine. So three inhibitors are not approved in the frontline setting in older adults with venasa, although that is being investigated, specifically with gilteritinib, um, which is approved as a single agent for relapse refractory. The free mutated AML. So, 
So Justin, um, you know, you made a, a, an important point here that uh, in the newly diagnosed patient, uh, mitostorin would be effective against FLT3-ITD or TKD, those patients be eligible, but for quizartinib, FLT3-ITD alone, because it's a type 2 inhibitor. Do you have to order separate tests to figure out which one the patient has? Great question, Harry. Um, no, both types of mutations are included on the standard FLT3 PCR testing, which looks for the ITD and will detect almost all of them, unless perhaps it's very long, and looks at most of the TKD mutations. Um, so it will get almost all of them and give you the allelic ratio. And it usually comes back in a few days. It's usually a fairly rapid test done at diagnosis, and it can be followed after treatment and remission and done at relapse if that occurs. Okay. The NGS testing will, will also get everything, but it, it typically takes a little longer, but NGS will, will tell you both ITD um, and TKD. Okay. So, Justin, what do you do in this situation? I, I tend to be a believer in the ad addition of gemtuzumab azogamycin for patients with core binding factor leukemias. So let's say um, you have a fish panel that comes back and says they have an 821 or inversion 16, and you've given them gemtuzumab on day one or four, day one, four, and seven, whichever schedule you think is the best. I usually just use one dose um, with induction. Um, but then the FLT3 comes back with a FLT3 ITD or TKD. Do you add in um, a FLT3 inhibitor? That is a really great question. Um, something we've I've thought about many times, but actually have not had happen. Um, but it certainly could happen. You know, we do see FLT3 mutations um, in both H21 mutated or rearranged leukemias, as well as inversion 16, um, maybe less commonly in inversion 16. There's not the most common, you know, signaling mutation. Sometimes there's a kit or a RAS, but it certainly happens. Um, and I don't know an exactly what percentage of core binding factor leukemia, but I would guess 10 to 20%. Um, and if that happened, I mean, a lot of things would have to line up. We use gemtuzumab typically, um, but given that it starts on day one, it's a little bit trickier than a flip feed inhibitor that starts on day eight. So if we really had everything back and we decided gemtuzumab um, was going to be used, which in core binding factor patients, I agree, there, there looks to be um, most of the benefit is there. Um, I don't know if I would add a fourth drug. I just think the myelosuppression and toxicity is unknown territory uh, for TKD. I think certainly not. Um, and the impact of the FLT3 and the core binding, if they're getting gemtuzumab already, is not really known. Those patients already do really well. Um, you know, so if the FLT3 was persistent or they were MRD positive, you could consider switching to that with consolidation and so on. Um, but that's a really good question. And it, you know, it, I think there's no right answer, but um, I probably would not use it given those patients do pretty well and the risk I think of myelosuppression might be significant. You know, I, I completely agree. And I asked that question because it is gonna come up in someone's practice. Um, and these patients with favorable risk um, karyotypes were included in both the RATIFI trial and in the quantum first trial. Um, and so they were treated with quizartinib or with mitostorin. Um, of course, we don't know the benefit of those FLT3 inhibitors in that specific subset of patients. They were very, very small uh, group uh, in both uh, studies. Um, I'll tell you, uh, when I've had that situation, 
I have added in mitostorin. It's often a TKD mutation anyways, but I've had it in mitostorin and with the understanding that if they have any kind of GI toxicity, you know, not tolerate, I'll stop it. Um, and I don't think the mitostorin has the same kind of myelosuppression as quizartinib does. And so I agree with you, I'd be pretty worried about adding it to quizartinib um, because of the added myelosuppression without um, uh, data showing it's safe to do so. So, you know, you bring up this point about, you know, high intensity versus low intensity based on age. And, you know, um, uh, by the way, I think this is one of the areas we'll keep our jobs, uh, Justin. Um, we're not going to be replaced by AI because no one knows how to define a patient who's fit or unfit or appropriate or inappropriate for intensive chemotherapy. Uh, it's in the eye of the beholder. But there are clearly some patients that um, will um, you know, be not fit for intensive chemotherapy, have a FLT3. Can you talk a little bit about those uh, low intensity therapies that have been uh, evaluated in that subset, subset like HMA, uh, hypomethylating agents with venetoclax and gilteritinib with azacitidine? Yeah, um, really interesting area, troublesome area to treat. Um, I, I think the, you know, as you know, they're kind of this, this, the standard of care now in the FLT3 mutated older AML is VNASA um, and or VNHMA, but usually it's venetoclax and azacitidine, um, which is actually surprisingly active in FLT3 mutated AML. Surprisingly. I mean, the, the CRCRI rate was 60 or 70%, I believe, like pushing even higher than the overall population. So they are sensitive um, to venetoclax. Um, the, the issue is their median survival is 11, 12 months instead of 15 months plus in some subtypes. And, and why is that? I mean, so that they don't do as well. They don't do as poorly as P53. They probably don't do as poorly as RAS. Although those, those two mutations are often intertwined, especially in older adults with FLT3. Sometimes I think it's just a surrogate for having a RAS subclone. And that may drive the relapse. And maybe it's really the RAS. But it, it's complicated. Um, and in terms of FLT3 inhibitor frontline, like why not add that in? Well, maybe. But azacitidine and gilteritinib as a doublet, no venetoclax, really, there was no benefit over aza alone. Um, and some of that may have been studied design, but for whatever reason, um, also in older studies as to serafinib and azacitidine, it doesn't seem to be the same synergy as venetoclax seems to be at least a better frontline FLT3 inhibitor, for lack of a better word, given with HMA in these patients, as opposed to a FLT3 inhibitor itself. Now, adding a third agent, FLT3 inhibitor, is clearly something that needs to be explored and already is, largely by our colleagues at MD Anderson, now in a larger multicenter trial, and also, I think, an arm on BDAML. Um, and that's with adding gilteritinib to Venasa. Very exciting prospect. Um, but as we're going to talk about with Crisartinib, when we're giving it with induction chemotherapy, Dosing and myelosuppression with these FLT3 inhibitors with venetoclax or with chemotherapy is a real issue. Um, they can't be given continuously. It's an issue dealing with the FDA on dosing and duration of men and day 14 marrows, and, but hopefully it's going to move the needle um, and 
prevent the relapse that we see occurring and with Venasa, which is obviously what's occurring, which can be with or without a flip free mutation um, in these older adults um, with AML. Yeah, I, I, you know, we, we really don't know what to do uh, for this subset of patients with flip free ITD who are not fit for intensive chemotherapy. I agree with you. The combination of venetoclax with uh, hypomethylating agents or gilteritinib with azacitidine showed high response rates, but in neither case was there an improvement in survival. Um, and then the uh, doublets of uh, uh, BCL2 and FLT3 inhibitors um, uh, in the relapse setting or the triplet um, are very tricky to use. I've tried this and there's significant myelosuppression. So we need a lot more work done in that area for those older patients. So let's now turn our attention uh, to um, the RATIFY trial. As you remember, uh, this was led by uh, Rich Stone, and my hats are off to my colleague, Rich Stone, up at the Dana-Farber, uh, for leading the um, international trial, combining a uh, NCI-sponsored cooperative group uh, study with European investigators uh, to give us one of the first approvals in this cascade of approvals we've had from the FDA um, over the last five years for a patient with AML. Uh, so uh, why don't you talk a little bit about Ratify and how it's changed our standard of care? Absolutely. Thanks, Harry. Um, yeah, I mean, this the Ratify trial was really hard to do. It took a long time and it was practice changing. Um, and I think it's important to make incremental benefits in these patients where survival was historically 40% at five years um, or maybe less. And... This was a well-done, randomized, placebo-controlled, blinded, huge trial, um, and it showed an overall survival benefit. And it actually, at first glance, there's like a tripling of the median overall survival, which I don't understand. I think it's a quirk of statistics and the inflection point on the curve, but the benefit is really more modest than that, but real. Um, the, the hazard ratio, I believe, was 0.78 or around that range, around 20% plus decreased risk of death. And I think it was a 7% improvement in four-year overall survival. But that is real, up to 50% or so long-term overall survival in flip-free mutated patients is an improvement, absolutely. Um, and in the real world, you know, maybe it's, you know, things are done differently, maybe, you know, it's a little better or a little worse, but I think we're certainly um, making advances and this kind of led the way for all of these inhibitors, um, including the other flip three inhibitors we'll talk about, IDH inhibitors, now minute inhibitors. Um, this was kind of a landmark first step. So one thing about the RATIFY trial, it was done in only in younger patients up to the age of 59, not 60 or older. Um, but the approval, at least in the United States, is uh, broad, age agnostic in adults. Um, uh, is there any uh, data uh, supporting mitostorin use in older patients with intensive chemo? That's a good question. I honestly don't know specifically. I'm sure there are some trials, phase one, two trials, using it with without chemo in, in all ages, relative refractory AML, but I don't have those data on hand. But it, I don't generally consider the age if they're, you know, fit for chemotherapy under 61 or 71. We generally will use 
modest or any of the other fit for your ITD or TKD mutation and they're fit for chemotherapy. We don't discriminate based on age and that because of how the trial was done. I mean, the trial was done that way. And that's a really good point that it was done that way because older patients don't tolerate intensive chemotherapy as well, right? So this trial was only done in younger patients, um, which is going to inflate your survival a bit. But, you know, we, we, if they're fit for chemotherapy, we treat them. Other important aspects to that are this trial actually gave everyone 200 milligrams per meter square of infusional cytarabine for seven days. And, uh, uh, and I, I believe the Quasartinib phase three allowed one or 200. And we always talk about that in trials. That's not a big deal. And okay, it's equivalent, not equivalent. You're doubling the dose of infusional cytarabine, you know, and the dose of Danarubicin, Dose of high-dose cytarabine consolidation may need to be adjusted when you're using it in older age groups. There's some nuances there, um, but in general, in, you know, um, for fit patients, we use mysorin, um with chemotherapy regardless of age, um, unless they're elderly and frail. Um, um, and now it's also preservative to consider in ITD-mutated patients, um, and we'll get into how to make that decision, I'm sure, in a future discussion. Yeah, it, you know, the only data that I know of is the uh, German study group, the AML 1610 study, which was single arm adding mitostorum to chemotherapy in patients up to the age of 70. And there was an improvement in ventry survival compared to historical controls. Um, but, you know, one of, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that I focus on in the uh, Ratify trial is they included both um, ITD and TKD mutated patients. And do you think the the benefit of uh, mitostorin is similar in those two groups, or was there any data to suggest that there was a difference? Oh, yeah. Um, that's a really good point. There are that, the age, the age range on this trial, everyone being under 60, and then what was done on quantum first, and then the fact that this trial included, I think it was around 20% of patients had TKD mutations, critically important. First of all, TKD mutations, as you know, the patients just do better overall with chemotherapy alone. They just do better. Um, or the impact is certainly less clear on prognosis. Um, and they also did better on the Ratify trial. If you look at the forest plots with the addition of mitostarin versus placebo, they had the greatest benefit. Um, when you add all the ITD high, ITD low, TKDs together, you got this significant overall survival benefit. The other one's all across unity, but clearly the biggest magnitude and the lowest hazard ratio in TKD mutated patients. And that may be partially driving their survival benefit. If you just look at ITD patients, there was a trend, but not significant overall survival benefit. Now you can't just do that and say, does it work at ITD? Because there wasn't power to do that. If you had enough patients, probably it would still be significant and just need more patients because the TKDs are more sensitive. So um, that's, that's a great question. I think um, it does really matter, but it's appropriate to use Minostarin for, for either mutation, absolutely. Right, but it, and, and with Quisartinib uh, approved now, um, it is not uh, effective in the TKD. So Minostarin should definitely be used in that group of patients. Um, I, I will say in my own experience, uh, there's a bit more GI toxicity with mitostorin, uh, has a terrible smell, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, um, than uh, my experience with gilteritinib or quizartinib. Um, 
but um, it did it did improve survival, especially for the TKD mutated subset of patients. Now, as you remember, in the Ratify trial, um, they also had a maintenance. Uh, do you use uh, uh, mitostorin as a maintenance? What we do in the and we do, and I've done it successfully, and I've had patients still alive, and I wonder if it's the maintenance or not. But um, in patients, you can't go to transplant. Obviously, you want to get these patients to transplant um, if they have a suitable donor. Um, that's the goal. Um, but if not, I do up to a year of maintenance. I believe that's what was done in the trial. For some reason, you probably know this, it's not on the label. Um, but we do what was done on the trial. Um, and I think that maintenance is important. We don't know as clearly as with Prozartinib that the maintenance benefits. I think with censored OS curves for transplants and long-term survival in CR patients, it's pretty clear that the maintenance with Prozartinib is probably having an impact, although other things may be as well um, that are happening sooner in the disease force like MRD status. But, but yeah, we, we use it. I think why wouldn't you if it's tolerated? It is given daily as maintenance. It is a different to toxicity profile given continuously daily. There is GI toxicity, absolutely. And if you give this drug with chemotherapy, right, that's why we give it, you know, day eight, I think when it was given with chemotherapy. And if a patient mistakenly does that during consolidation or something happens, it's really not tolerated. So it it it, it has to be sequenced and um, when given with chemotherapy. But um, the GI toxicity is what I have noted sometimes. Um, a, a rash, generally manageable um, toxicity profile, though. And, and you know what? Um, uh, it, where where I have trouble is in the fifty percent of patients with um, uh, FLT three who also have an NPM one mutation. There's uh, the subset data from the Quasar study showing a benefit of maintenance with oral azacitidine. So, which one do you pick if they have both mutations? And um, clearly, there's no data there. And I have not been brave enough to. Uh, try to combine both main, both drugs as a maintenance. What's, what's interesting about the Ratify trial is that in the Ratify trial, um, there was no difference in uh, response rate um, between placebo and mitostorin. So the benefit of the mitostorin was really um, uh, seen after, in the patient who went on to allotransplant, suggesting that maybe there was a benefit in terms of um, a, a deeper remission with mitostorin. Of course, we don't have that data from the Ratify trial. We'll talk about that data from the Quantum First study. Um, but you know, we're, we're clearly seeing that uh, eradication of MRD is it is clearly a prognostic marker. Uh, the way I look at it is, it, it's not good to have even a little bit of cancer left after treatment at various um, points in time. Of course, this has not been standardized yet. Um, in terms of how to really use this as a marker um, to decide what to do with, with therapy. Um, but uh, with the FLT3 um, mutation and an AML, there are a couple of ways of looking at measurable residual disease. Clearly by flow cytometry, that's a little bit difficult. Uh, you have to hope that you have a, a leukemia-associated immunophenotype and that it's not gonna change. Um, over time, you don't get this antigenic shift, which you can. Um, it can be very difficult to interpret um, those uh, histograms, trying to decide if the patient has measurable residual disease. And it's not that sensitive either. Um, but it does look at the BLAST population. But there is now a FLT3 ITD um, uh, NGS assay 
that's commercially available that has been used in the quantum first study and uh, in the morpho trial that I'll, I'll talk about in a second that um, has shown to uh, be prognostically important um, and actually predictive of su survival in the quantum first study. So um, we will get to that when we talk about quizartinib. Um, but MRD as a target does seem to be important. And I think a great example of that, Justin, is the MORPHO trial. Now, this is a study that was uh, done by our colleagues in the BMT Clinical Trials Network, um, where they took patients in first remission with FLT3 ITD um, mutated AML and randomly assigned them to gilteritinib versus a placebo. And the primary endpoint of the study was relapse-free survival. And I don't know if you saw Mark Levis's um, uh, presentation of this data. Um, it, the the soundbite, the top line report that came out very early this year was it was a negative study. Well, it was a, considered a negative study because the relapse-free survival was numerically better with gilteritinib than with placebo but the p-value was, 0, was uh, 0.0512 or something like that. Just missed this arbitrary cutoff of 0.05, but it is the statistical design of the study. But what's really interesting about their data is that then they then used um, this uh, FLT3-ITD-specific NGS-based MRD assay and divided patients um, into those who were still positive right before the transplant. A few were positive after the transplant, but mostly positive right before the transplant or negative by that assay at some predefined cutoff. And the patients who were MRD positive, there was clearly a benefit in terms of relapse-free survival. And if they were MRD negative, there was no benefit. And so, and this is something I, I would have expected here um, from from this drug. Um, it is clearly effective against FLT3. Um, and the way I think about this is maybe the gilteritinib is allowing a graft versus leukemia uh, effect to take shape long. So the gilteritinib keeps the clone under control until you get that. Uh, but for whatever reason, there was a benefit in that subset. Um, on the other hand, in the patients where there wasn't a benefit, um, if you use this assay, you could actually argue, well, maybe we're going to spare them the potential toxicities of gilteritinib if they're MRD negative. And so I think we're still all coming to grips with um, the results of the MORPHO trial. There were some interesting differences between the readouts from uh, the United States and Europe, potentially suggesting different ways that we take care of these patients. But I think that's an example of a study that um, showed a benefit of an intervention in the, in the setting of MRD positive disease. Um, and uh, we'll talk more about that when we get to uh, the quantum first study. Anything you'd like to add about uh, MRD testing? Yeah, Perry, those are all really great points. Um, I think MRD is becoming more and more accepted in AML and more critically important. There are nuances. Flow cytometry requires certain expertise and can be difficult to interpret um, and have kind of Inter interpreter variation and so on. Um, but it is a general test, right, for the leukemia phenotype. The, mu the mutation-specific tests that are most important are not just, you know, standard NGS panels, 
but looking at these key driver mutations where we know there's prognostic impact in PM1 or, or binding factor um, mutations by PCR and now FIT3 ITD mutations by this deep NGS assay that can get down to 10 to the minus four, 10 to the minus five. And I think um, it's hard to argue with the data when you look at your study at Quantum First at the MRD data, um, it's all incremental, but it all adds up, I think, to the survival benefit, some of it being MRD um, and some of it maybe being maintenance. Um, but there was a little more, a few more CRIs actually. So there, there was the CRC rate was a little higher, a few percent. There was a few percent more MRD negative to 10 to the minus four. And there was a few percent more total MRD clearance, 10 to the minus five, when you add those up. Maybe it's 10% of patients with these better remissions. Um, and as you said, do you want to have um, no cancer or like a little bit of cancer left? I mean, it just doesn't, it just, you know, and patients do then go to transplant. It makes sense um, that they're going to benefit, um, certainly if they're MRD positive um, from the transplant, possibly if they're negative, and then possibly, as you said, from guilt to risk and maintenance post transplant, if they were MRD positive pre transplant. Um, and I think that brings us back. So one thing I wanted to, to highlight from the last time we spoke that I was thinking about this FLIP3, including ITD mutations now being intermediate risk by ELN. I agree with that. Um, however, there's also more, more discussion, I think at least about the risk of transplant and the benefit of transplant in intermediate risk AML patients that are younger in CR1. Um, while that may be true for some other genotypes, I would argue that that does not apply at all to FLT3 mutated patients, specifically ITD, that both ratify and quantum first clearly show the benefit of allogeneic transplant in these populations. Yes, maybe it could be guided by MRD, but even if MRD negative, um, I think the data in FLT3 um, it is just strongly um, in favor of transplant in younger patients. And great point there. You know, that that's getting a lot of press right now. A recent large publication, I think it was JAMA Oncology, but I could be wrong on that. Um, JAMA Oncology showing no benefit of transplant for intermediate risk, but it's such a broad group of patients. And and um, I can't remember in that study if they were including FLT3 as intermediate risk, right? Um, and so I, I agree with you. I wouldn't. So we have to be really careful about this risk stratification, but also think about the clinical trials that are being done specifically in these groups of patients. Well, I, I really enjoyed our conversation about uh, treatment of newly diagnosed AML patients. I, I think um, uh, to summarize it, mitostorin has clearly improved uh, the overall survival of patients with FLT3, ITD, and TKD mutated AML uh, that is newly diagnosed in combination with chemotherapy. Um, based on the RATIFY trial. Um, I think we still have a lot of work to do in older patients who not, cannot get intensive chemotherapy. It'll be interesting to see, uh, we talked about gilteritinib and its activity uh, to prevent relapse in MRD-positive patients uh, following an allogeneic transplant. And we all look forward to the results of the uh, PRECOG study um, and the HOVON uh, study looking at gilteritinib versus mitostorin in previously untreated uh, AML. Those studies should be reading out hopefully in 2024. But in, in our the next time we get together, um, uh, I wanna discuss with you um, quizartinib specifically. 
the new kid on the block, block a more potent FLT3 inhibitor for FLT3 ITD mutated disease and the recent FDA approval in the newly diagnosed FLT3 ITD mutated adult with AML. Thank you all for listening. I've enjoyed our conversation. Justin? Thanks, Harry. That was fantastic. Um, I think we're wrapping up. The one last point I would add is we've been focused so much on fit patients or fit for chemotherapy patients, but um, the older patients are out there with the three. Um, Vinaza, I think we're still in advance in that group. Um, it's still a great backbone, but relapse and survival is an issue compared to FLT3 wild type. Um, I think um, how to incorporate FLT3 inhibitors there is going to be so crucial. I think the VIN is important though. And, you know, those patients, while they did worse than the overall population, did do a little better than with AZA alone, unlike the P53, where they just all did poorly. And so I think, and there are anecdotal patients that do have long emissions, despite having put through ITD, depending on the co-mutations, and who knows? I think there's just so much to be explored there. Um, and I think hopefully the next time we do one of these, we'll have a, you know, new therapies targeting put three in that older population as well. Another reason why AI will not replace us, Justin, there's still a lot of work to be done. Thank you all. Thanks. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash AML2. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service, or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.